I have learned the importance of living in harmony with the natural world by simplifying our lives and embracing a slower way of living. Hello, wild ones. Welcome to the Black Girl Country Living Podcast, where we explore nature as a way to connect to ourselves, community, and the living world. Join us each month as we explore a new theme with stories and interviews that center the perspectives and experiences of people of color. We are a collective on a journey to find healing in nature and discover how the outside can guide us inward. If you are ready, grab a cup of tea, take a deep breath to ground yourself in this moment, and let's rewild. Hello and welcome to the April edition of the Black Girl Country Living Podcast. This month, we are talking about the essentials. It is all about foundations, the basic building blocks, our essential sustenance, and the fundamental elements that make life livable and worth living. This month, my letter to you is all about a lesson I learned from my ducks on care being an essential part of all life. Our kit card this month comes all the way from Portugal, and we hear from sustainability blogger Antonia and how experiencing poverty and excess has led her to a life of essentialism and simplicity. And if you've read the Black Girl Country magazine this month, you'll know I wrote a story about George Washington Carver, his contributions to sustainable agriculture, and his belief that soil is the foundation of all life. Today, we're going to pick up on those ideas in a conversation with soil scientist Jules and talk a little bit more about why we misunderstand soil so much and what we can do to take better care of it. Let's get started with my rewilding words for you this month on care being an essential part of life. My dearest wild ones, a year ago, we reached a major country living milestone. We decided to welcome animals to our homestead. We had never owned any pets, so this was a big step. Chickens seem like a natural place to begin since we eat eggs daily, and we simply wanted to shortcut our trip to the grocery store. I happily announced our plan to friends and neighbors, and some cautioned me about the abundance of natural predators in the area. I was quick to dismiss these warnings, not wanting to face the fact that I was entering into a complex relationship with the living world. One spring morning, I dropped the kids off at school and decided to make an impromptu stop at the country store. I promised myself I would just look before returning home for my morning meeting. In the store, I gravitated towards the glow of the heat lamps that hung over the stock tanks where the chicks cuddled in small clusters. I skirted around the edge of the tanks, reading the placards about each of the breeds until I reached the final tank. My eyes grew wide and I dropped to my knees. These chicks were not chicks. They were ducklings. My heart nearly stopped when I noticed a handwritten sign next to the trough that stated, A buck a duck, two minimum. Excited and offended by the insane bargain, I claimed a set of ducks that huddled tightly in a corner together. An employee scooped them up and plopped them into a Happy Meal-style container. 
As I rode home with them next to me on the passenger seat, I rehearsed how I would tell my husband about this new lifestyle I just thrust us into. Ultimately, I landed on the breathless statement, I just got two ducks because they were on sale for a dollar, but they're basically the same as chickens and I'll take care of them. He would hold me to this promise. It wasn't long before the ducks' cuteness paled in comparison to the work that they required. I was constantly refreshing their bedding, cleaning food containers, and protecting them from the eagles and hawks that had taken notice of these tasty snacks in our yard. I was hauling five-gallon jugs of water for them, cleaning up their poop, and could often be found running around with a broom in an attempt to corral them. The essential labor and care was a sharp contrast to the adorable Instagram-worthy photos and videos that I shared. I was playing my part in perpetuating the myth that raising animals was always joyful, simple, and carefree. Because the sex of the birds was unknown, I randomly assigned them names, Iggy and Barney. I wouldn't know for a few months whether we'd be getting eggs from either of them, and even then it would be at least six months before the eggs arrived. When I confirmed that one of them was a male, I was upset that we had one egg layer and one seemingly useless duck. This was compounded by my annoyance that Iggy, the male, was aggressive towards everyone and would chase after my kids. I felt conflicted about my commitment to these animals. There were moments when I wished a predator would take him away, and I felt shame for having that thought. Over the months, I continued to build the muscle of caring for these beings, even when I didn't want to. Slowly, I began to enjoy their company in the garden and laugh out loud at the way they waddled through the forest. I witnessed the tenderness and reverence that the two ducks had for one another and couldn't help but be drawn into their world. Iggy turned out to be Barney's unapologetic protector, allowing her to live her best life and forge in peace. My feelings of gratitude and appreciation fully blossomed when Barney began laying large double yolk eggs. I felt like all my hard work was worth it and my love was being reciprocated. Not long after we had reached this harmonious balance, my husband reported to me that our neighbors had lost all of their chickens to a raccoon. My heart dropped and tears welled in my eyes at the thought of losing our ducks. A day earlier, I was researching duck breeds, thinking about expanding the flock. Now, I was forced to grapple with something so fundamental, the circle of life. I thought of Wendell Berry's writing on animal husbandry, recalling that caretaking is an essential practice that connects us to our place and to the living world but that it does not exempt us from the cycles of nature that will always return us back to the earth. Sadly, this reality came to pass a few weeks ago. I went to put the ducks in for the evening, but when I called for them, they didn't come waddling out of the forest as they usually did. Instead, I found Barney lying alone in the cage with her head tucked behind her wing. She was never alone, and in that instant I knew exactly what had happened. My heart sank to the bottom of my stomach as I stared at this melancholy duck. With tears filling my eyes, I gathered all my courage and a dash of hope and headed into the woods. With each heavy step, I called Iggy's name until a puff of feathers confirmed what I had already known. Tears flowed down my face as I shut Barney in the cage alone, feeling like I had failed to care for these beautiful beings. I quickly rehoused Barney to another flock and felt the pains of my empty nest. For many days, my muscle memory kept calling me to tend to the ducks, to walk them through the woods, fluff their bedding, refill their water, or collect their eggs. I played their final day over and over in my mind, trying to find an alternative ending. Soon, a deeper truth started to emerge. 
Iggy lived every moment in service of Barney, and he died serving his duty to her. They had a relentless respect for one another that I grew to admire. In his passing, Iggy showed me, once again, that care is a mutual and selfless act that is essential for all life. With care and kindness from your rewilding guide, Hillary. Iggy, you will forever be my favorite useless duck, and I am grateful for the opportunity to understand the world just a little bit more through you. So each month we have a Kith card, and Kith ship, K-I-T-H, is really all about a special connection we have to the land. Um, it's oftentimes used with the idea of kinship, which I think we're more familiar with, which is connection to other people. But Kithship is the idea that our land can shape us, the spaces that we're in mold us into different kinds of people. And so each month we hear on the theme from somebody who has been shaped and molded by their place. This month, I am so excited for you all to meet Antonia from Portugal. She is a blogger and somebody who has really inspired my journey of more simple and essential living. And she writes about her journey from growing up in poverty in Angola, moving to Portugal and experiencing so much excess that it really inspired her to think differently about the kind of life she wanted to live. So I am super excited to take us all on a little trip to Portugal so you can meet Antonia. Hi, my name is Antonia Musash. I was born in Angola, but my family moved to Portugal during the Angolan Civil War when I was six years old. Living in Angola, my family experienced poverty and then moving to Portugal where this abundance but also mindless consumption have both shaped who I am today and it has been a journey to find balance between the two extremes. This experience eventually led me to embrace a more sustainable and intentional lifestyle. I started She's Awake, my blog, as a way to share my journey and inspire others to live in a way that aligns with their values and beliefs. I also founded Zero Angola, a community-based project aiming to reduce poverty to sustainable education and products. To me, sustainability means living in a way that supports the long-term health and well-being of the planet. My understanding of sustainability has evolved over the years and I have learned more about the impact of our actions on the environment and the importance of taking responsibility of our choice. When I first started on this journey, I mainly focused on reducing waste and living more minimalist lifestyle. But as I learned more about how everything is interconnected, I realized that true sustainability goes way behind just reducing our personal impact. It really involves creating systems that support all life on earth and recognizing that we are all some way connected with each other. It has led me to approach my consumption habits with a sense of responsibility, choosing products and practice that are in harmony with the natural world. Nature is a huge part of my life and work. I make it a priority to spend time outside every day, whether it's going for a walk or working outside. 
I also try to bring elements of nature into my home so I can ground me and connect with nature in the way that I remember myself that I am part of nature. It's just amazing how a simple walk, 20 minutes outside, uh, it just reminds me a lot of the grand scheme of things and brings me peace. I have learned the importance of living in harmony with the natural world and how we find happiness and fulfillment by simplifying our lives and embracing a slower way of living. It also taught me the value of community and the power of connecting with like-minded individuals who share the same values and passion. I think it's really important to have a support system that really uplifts you on this journey towards a more sustainable and intentional way of living. The most important lesson I have learned from this journey is that small action can really make a big difference. Even small chance can contribute to a more sustainable and fulfilling life. Antonia, thank you so much for being here today to share your journey. If you want to learn more about Antonia and all the beautiful ways in which she's thinking about a more essential lifestyle, you can find her on Instagram and Facebook at She Is Awake and Zero Angola. All right, y'all, nothing is more essential to life than the earth and the soil. And this month in our sacred story, we are getting into the brilliance of the soil with soil scientist Jules. I'm so excited for y'all to hear it. This month, we're talking about essentialism. And when we talk about essentialism in nature, I don't think we can have a complete conversation about this without talking about something as essential as soil and the fact that everything comes from soil, everything goes back to soil. And I couldn't think of a better person to have a conversation with than a soil scientist, somebody who I admire and have learned a lot from. And so I'm really excited to have Jules on the show today to talk a little bit about soil, talk a little bit about George Washington Carver and why soil is foundational to all life. So welcome, Jules. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on and uh, talk more about soil. Can you tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Yeah, so I currently work for a company called Rosie Soil. I'm the lead soil researcher there. We are a potting soil company that's focused on having zero emissions and also using inputs that are sustainable. So most potting soils have peat moss in them, which peat bogs are very important for storing carbon. They store about a third of all land-based carbon. And so essentially mining those releases a lot of carbon. So instead of using peat moss, we're using biochar. We're doing sustainable potting soil work. And my whole job is just experimenting with the soil formulation and plants. Before that, my background's in organic farming. I've done organic farming research. I've done cannabis cultivation. I've done vermicompost production and school gardening. So all wrapped around like organic farming, gardening, and soil education. Yeah. That's amazing. One of the things that I learned about you is that you started your career in social justice and, and then you made the step into agriculture and have traverse across a lot of different spaces. Yeah. And I'm curious, at what point did soil itself become something that you were interested in? Mm. So as I made that transition out of doing like policy research and organizing, I wanted to do something completely different just because I wanted something that was like life-giving and affirming and I loved organizing, but it was just very heavy. And so I found a job doing school gardening in Chicago where we got to work with K through 12 students and we would seed with them, we would plant, we would harvest and cook it. 
And so they got to learn everything in the garden. They got to learn about nutrition and environmentalism. And I think just like working with the kids in the garden, taking to the soil with kindergarten kids or picking tomatoes of the high school, like that just got me into farming and gardening. And then I think as I continued to go down that road, I was like, okay, how does this all work? How does the soil work? Well, that's like the next question. I'm growing plants. This makes sense. But what's in the soil to make everything grow? Yeah. It's so funny because I think I started with a similar mentality of, I just want the food. I want the tomatoes. I want a healthy bed of lettuce. But at some point you're like, wait a second, what makes this all possible? Like I'm watering this, but where mm -hmm. is all of the stuff coming from to make this possible? So, mm -hmm. um, but we have this idea that soil is dirty, that it's gross, that it's beneath mm -hmm. us. And so when we think of soil that way, what is it that we're missing? We're missing so much. I mean, so a teaspoon of soil has over a million different species of microbes in it. We know like 2% of soil microbes, that's it, like a tiny percentage. And so the soil is full of different mysteries. It's doing things that help plants grow. It's helping to recycle old leaves that fall from the tree. It helps recycle dead animals, carcasses, like soil microbes do so much and we know so little about it. And so I think, I think we need to like jump into being more in the dirt. I think there's benefits around having your hand and your feet in the soil. There's a type of micro that actually mimics essentially like serotonin. So it boosts your mood. And so like, there's just all these benefits to work in the soil, to being in the soil in terms of mood, in terms of health. And so I think we need to have a re-understanding that soil is very connected to us because it sustains all of our food and it sustains so much life as well. And so we're much more connected to it and dependent on it than we think. And I think saying dirt sometimes makes it feel like it's dead, it's nasty, it's gross, whereas soil is like full of life, it's jumping, it's, it's nourishing life. And we've been told dirt is dirty, it's nasty, don't get it on yourself. And so I think we just need to understand that it's so important and so interconnected with us. Yeah. I love that you called it mysterious because I think that it is a lot of that. And I think especially when you start thinking about like the fungus and I think we have this inherent fear of fungus and the fact that soil does in some ways represent death. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if there has been a point where it's really caused you to think differently about life and death mm -hmm. and, and the role it plays in that. Sure. Yeah. I think on a smaller scale, it had me thinking of life and death just because I know as a gardener myself, when I've messed up plants and they've died, I've been like, oh, I killed this plant. I feel so bad. And since starting a vermicompost bin years ago, I now just like take a dead plant, throw in the vermicompost bin, and then it's churning out new, new vermicompost that's great for new plants. And so I think making that connection between like life and death, but also like composting is part of the process of creating more life and sustaining more life. So I think it's that cycle of life and death not being a bad thing, but death actually providing more for the next generation and just a way to, to support more growth. And yeah, I think I've just learned to see it as one, a natural cycle and two, something that sustains more life and not viewed as something that's like inherently bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely something that I've really had to sit with too. And especially I have two young kids when they started getting into it, I have been so oriented to be like, don't let the kids get messy. You don't want them out there. They're going to get sick. And then learning that, like you said earlier, that the microbes, they, they really can have an effect on our gut health, our mood, our nervous system. There's so many ways that they're beneficial. Is there a point or any way that you've seen your worldview change because of your work with soil? Mm, I would say definitely. I think coming up from a background of organic farming, I kind of moved into natural farming. And natural farming is all about using local microorganisms back on your soil. So it's essentially 
using forest microbes to then help build your soil and sustain life and do things in a natural way that doesn't bring in synthetic fertilizers or anything else. And so I think that type of farming and gardening taught me that, you know, we need to value the soil. And a lot of, I think I was doing some organic research at a large institution a couple of years back. We were organic farmers, but we weren't treating the soil in a way that was like, regenerating more life that was sustainable that was actually focused on bettering the soil microbes and the local wildlife and so i think after that somewhat bad experience i was like i want to be doing work that's like sustaining soil that's building life that's committed to not just growing like healthy plants but growing the soil building the soil sustaining more life and so yeah i think i've learned that there's many ways to farm and garden but i think my focus is now has been how can i support the soil microbes, and then they'll support plant health. And so looking at the other way first, like soil first, building that, and then we'll have a good environment for plants to thrive in. That was something that I found so fascinating about George Washington Carver's work is that that was the mentality that he had. And I'm like, wow, massive institutions approach it from the other way. It's just like, Mm -hmm. how do we just get the most out of it? And it doesn't matter what the soil looks like because it's just dirt. Like we just need produce. So how have your garden and farming practices shifted since learning that? And how has the output shifted? Sure. So I'd say my practices have switched more to like, to using like local, like making one, making homemade fertilizers, and then two, relying a lot on biological teas. So using like compost tea, using a tea that has local microorganisms in it, that's just meant to bolster the soil and bring more diversity to it. And so, yeah, my practices have more shifted into uh, continuing to feed the soil with microbes as opposed to like fertilizer. And so like, instead of giving it a lot of nutrients over and over, just giving it these microbes that help break down the nutrients and feed the plant and give them more water, give them more nutrients. Cause a lot of these soils already have lots of nutrients in them, but they're locked up cause they don't have the right microbes to break it down and work with the plant. One tenet of natural farming is using what you have around you. So they take a big barrel and fill it up with water, like non-chlorinated rainwater, and then fill it with local weeds that aren't poisonous. And essentially what it's doing is it's fermenting those weeds and taking all the growth hormones in it, the local microorganisms and all the nutrients and just breaking it down into a super nasty smelling fertilizer. And I use a tiny bit of that in five gallons in water. And that does like, that does all like the nutrients that I need. So yeah, just shifting towards how I can, how I can do stuff locally that's at cost. That's also good for the soil and good for my own health as well. My background is in organizing. And my hope is that through like agriculture and organizing, I can teach people how to stand themselves better, how to nurture the soil, how to take care of their neighbors. And so I still see this work as a way of organizing or work around justice. I want people to get into farming and gardening, but it can be expensive. And so learning like, how can I do this locally? How can I support people around me? How can we work together to, to compost? Can you grow the greens and I grow the beans? It has to be a community thing. And so- Yeah, it has to. And I learned that in farming, trying to do that stuff solo, like you just can't. And so I want to be, I want to see a way forward that's like more sustainable for the farmers. Yeah. Oh my God. There's so much I want to ask you about, but first and foremost, I have to absolutely agree and just restate the point that, that farming and food is a pathway to freedom and it is, it is justice. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think when we recognize that we have the capability to feed ourselves, to nourish ourselves, it makes so much other stuff possible. So I think what you're doing is, it is not too much of a departure from the justice work that you were doing before. It's just a reincarnation of it. So mm-hmm. that's so cool. Yeah. One of the things I, I wanted to ask about is when we think about like chemical fertilizers versus organic fertilizers, 
especially as new gardeners, it's so easy to go to the store and be like, oh, well, this is on the shelf. I just buy this, throw it in the soil. And our disconnection from the soil makes it such that we don't understand what exactly is happening in the soil. Totally. Um, if we just dump something on there and we still get a great plant, mm-hmm. used a, a chemical fertilizer. So sure. what is it that's happening in the soil when we mm. pour something that's toxic on there, but we still get somewhat of a result that we wanted? Sure. Yeah. So I'll say synthetic fertilizers work well, like they can grow a good plant. The issue is essentially what synthetic fertilizer is doing is it's cutting out the micro, which the middleman. So typically like microbes are consuming nutrients and then going to plant roots and another microbes eating that other microbe and then releasing those nutrients. So it's doing an exchange with the plant, the plant's giving it carbon and then the microbes are giving it nutrients. And so instead of that happening, the synthetic fertilizers go right to the plant. And it's almost like fast food or something like that. Like it juices it up. It's good, but it's one, not nurturing the soil life. So it doesn't have, it doesn't help the soil life, but it actually hurts it in many ways. So it limits the soil life. It's drying out the soil because the high salt content. And then if you dump on extra fertilizer, like extra nitrogen, that's running off, like running off means it's flowing out of your yard into the waterways. And then that exists now in our waterways. And that's one of the mm-hmm. biggest issues is synthetic fertilizer just washing out into our waterways, into a water table. And then we have a big issue with too much nitrogen or too much phosphorus. And so, yeah, you can grow a great plant with it. Your soil health over time is going to decrease. It's going to be harder and harder to use. Then you're going to need more fertilizer to grow the same plant in that soil. So it's just like a cyclical thing where you just need to buy more to keep depending on the synthetic fertilizer as your soil health decreases. I understand why people move that way just because it's hard to know what to put in the soil. When you go to a gardening section, there's a thousand options. Yeah. And so... My biggest thing for people, if they're like, what do I start with? I'd say, try and find a good compost source if you can. Uh, and then just mulch as heavy as you can on top of that. That's usually my first thing to go with is just make sure it has good compost around it or plant with compost and then mulch heavily, cover the soil, nurture those microbes and see where your plant goes. And if you're noticing something, then you can add fertilizer from there. Okay, cool. Um, you're tapping into something that I had a big insecurity about. So my husband's father Oh, it's a garden and landscape business. And they, so they're like deeply attuned to the rhythms of the season. And every now and then they'll be like, it's mulching season. And I was like, what the hell is mulch? What are we doing here? Mm -hmm. And um, some people refer to like rocks as mulch. Some people refer to, you can buy like these rubber pellets and call it mulch. But in your mind, what is mulch and what is it doing for the soil? Yeah. um, My two favorites are wood chips or old leaves. So like mm-hmm. in the spring or in the fall, when people get rid of all their leaves, I just go around and pick them up and throw them in my garden. Uh, and so what mulch is doing is one, it's covering the soil. So when you have rain events, you have a lot of wind and your soil is uncovered. It's just going to be taken off that top layer. It has a lot of microbes. It's, co- it's protecting your roots in the soil. It's helping just like with the, the strength of the plant and the way that it's sitting. And so covering the soil, one, keeps erosion out. Two, it covers the microbes, which they prefer. They don't want direct sunlight because it'll dry them out. And then three, if it's wood chips or if it's old leaf matter, they're just going to break that down. So then you're just breaking down more soil slowly over time. So that's why I just keep adding mulch, like always add more mulch, just keep letting it break down, keep letting more soil build. And over a season or two, you'll notice you now have a larger amount of soil there. It's loose, it's probably full of a lot of like earthworms or a lot of microbes. And so that's what you want to just build over time. And mulching helps you do that over time slowly. It's going to take time. There's no quick answers to it. But it's just, it's honestly a matter of time. You can't rush that. Yeah. Um, George Washington Carver was all about starting with where you're at, with what you have. 
And uh, you already dropped so many gems on just like where people can start being frugal, being thoughtful about what you're picking up. Totally. Are there other tips that you generally give folks who are just getting started in how they should be thinking about their soil health or how they could be improving it? Sure. I would say like if you're on the nerdier side and you like going deep into the stuff, natural farming, like I was talking about, specifically Korean natural farming and then Jadam, J-A-D-A-M. They're all about being low cost, farmer friendly and ways to like nurture microbes, but also use what you have around you. And that's what I use currently. And it's very low cost. So if you're a nerd, jump into that. Otherwise, like very simple. If you want to grow in containers, I would say find like the cheapest organic you can find at Home Depot. So they have a brand called like Kellogg, I think that's pretty solid. I would just go with that a simple potting soil, some compost, cover the top with whatever mulch you want and just let it go from there and see what grows. And you're going to feel for it over time. You're going to kill some plants. Some plants are going to thrive. And it's really just like a learning process. I'm growing new plants every day and I'm failing on a lot of them. It's really just like learning that process, learning what the soil likes, but also what the plant likes, and then just moving forward with it. Yeah, that's such great advice. I, I approached gardening with a spreadsheet mentality the first year. And I was like, these are all the things I'm going to put in here. And then I'm going to have this beautifully perfect crop rotation because these things are going to grow in yeah. and then I'm going to slam these next things in the soil yeah. and none of that happened <laughs> uh, yes. because that's not how nature works. Yeah. So it's a humbling experience. It is totally. Yeah. Okay. Jules, I like to ask everybody, what is one thing that in this case, the soil has taught you about yourself? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I feel like the soil has taught me to be humble. And it's taught me to just always be a student or a learner. And I'm always going to be learning in farming and gardening. There's so many crops that you can grow. You can go like deep into one and still not learn everything. And so, yeah, just to continue to learn always. You're going to fail all the time while gardening and that's okay. Just keep doing what you can. Can you also share like what your vision is for what you want to do next? I know that you probably think about this stuff. You've done some really cool stuff in your community. What is your vision for what you want to create? My goal, like always has been to have my own, to have my own property. And so that was, that's always been the goal. Obviously in a farmer's salary, that's very hard. I don't think I'd want to do production farming, but I would love to do like educational farming where I'm like showing people how to make their own inputs, showing people how to harness local microbes to use back in your garden, just doing community work, but also teaching people how to do their own stuff. That's kind of what I'm passionate about. And then down the line, I like have a background in growing cannabis and I would love to do some genetics work and be able to crossbreed different plants, see what comes out. The nerdy side of me loves breeding plants. And so I would love to jump into that someday if I had my own like nursery space. Yeah, we'll see. That's amazing. I can't wait to see you fulfill those dreams. You're going to do it. It's going to be amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Awesome, Jules. Thank you so much. If you want to keep up with Jules and learn more about soil health, you can find him on YouTube and Instagram at Smoke Your Greens. Links are in the show notes. All right, my wild ones, that is it for this edition of the Black Girl Country Living Podcast. If this issue moved you or gave you some new perspective, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple and Spotify. It really does make a difference. The Black Girl Country Living Podcast and magazine are written, produced, and edited by me, Hillary Maddox, with creative input and monthly podcast curation from Udi Chima. Thanks again to you all for listening and being on this rewilding journey with me. Until next time, wild ones, take care, be kind, and we will talk soon.